he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Thank you for taking time to join us as we take time to learn from God's Word together. The message you are about to hear comes from the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Listen to more sermons or learn more about the church at our website, capenazarene.org. This season we are um, going through some psalms this Advent season. Look at the psalms that remind us that uh, God is one who is interested in coming into our lives and meeting us where we are. That is what Advent means. It means to come. and It is a, this time of expectation. In fact, uh, I think the word adventure is, is that excitement that comes and meets us into our life that we get to experience. And so uh, those words are, are very similar. Advent is the expectation that God is going to do something and come in our midst. And so the psalm that we are going to read today, uh, 85, is a psalm that is asking precisely for God to come and meet them where they are. I'm going to read uh, most of the psalm, the first couple verses and then the last few. The middle section's great. I mean, if you want to turn to it, you can still look to it. It is uh, in that lament uh, tone, which we read from last week. And so uh, I will be reading the rest of the uh, We read it in a different psalm, but we read a lament psalm last week. But I'll start at verse 1, and it says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. Well, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people, to His faithful, to those who turn to Him in their hearts. Surely His salvation is at hand for those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and will make a path for his steps. This psalm is a psalm that is crying out to God. God, we remember what you've done. Uh, the middle section, I, I kind of skipped over, is a section that says, Lord, uh, we, we, we recognize that things have not uh, gone according to plan. It seems that you are angry with us. And then afterwards, this hope, God, you're going to come. You're going to do something new. You're going to meet us where we are. And so Psalm 85 is, is a lament that's focused on faithfulness and in recognizing that God desires to restore relationship with His people. The first couple verses, the people are remembering and proclaiming the faithfulness of God. Lord, You've been favorable in this land before. You've restored this nation before. The fortunes of Jacob is a way of speaking about the entire people of God. Jacob as the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so all the tribes are a part of the covenant where God has promised to be with them and to be their God. And so they are remembering this. God, you've been good before. Please do not forget who we are. And the verses I didn't read are are a little bit of a lament where they say, God, it seems like you're angry. It seems like perhaps you've turned away from us and and you're you're mad at us. It's one that focuses on uh, wondering, is God going to be angry forever? Will the people be revived? What's going to happen here? And it's just worth saying about that, that it is okay to pray in those ways. It is okay for us to say, okay, God, I've messed up. Are you mad? Are you angry? Well, I haven't heard from you in a while. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Uh, uh, Lord, how do we fix things? Uh, how do we 
uh, move on from here. It's a, it's a true lament. It comes straight out of the heart, remembering what's lost and remembering what they're missing and saying, okay, God, what now? It seems like you've turned aside. And, and it transitions into a time of expectation, and it does so mentioning the word steadfast love. Lord, show us your steadfast love. Your, to use a word that we used when we talked about Ruth just a few weeks ago. The word for this steadfast love is the word hesed. It is a word that means God's unending grace. The grace of God, His ongoing faithfulness that was evidenced in the book of Ruth that we just covered uh, not too long ago. One where we recognize the, the faithfulness of God for us was embodied in Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi and then Boaz's faithfulness to Ruth. Always there, ongoing, re- recognizing and knowing their commitments and being faithful to that. And so this psalm cries out, God, you have been one who has shown steadfast love. You've shown that chesed. You've shown that, that, that this is your character. It's who you are. You have always been faithful. And the declaration crying out to God to be faithful again is recognizing that they are expecting something new. They're expecting that God is going to meet and be faithful again where they have been unfaithful. And so out of that expectation is the cry in verse 8, let me hear what the Lord will speak. He will speak peace to His people. It's a call to listen, a call to wait, a call to expect. And when we pray and we go to God, I think sometimes that's the hardest part is the waiting and the listening. We're used to praying and we're used to uh, calling out to God and maybe just saying what our needs are, saying what our concerns are, and then expecting that that answer is going to come pretty soon. Expecting, okay, what, what happens here? But in the listening of what God might want to do through us during this time is hard. The, the expectation of, okay, God, what happens now is difficult. But the psalmist recognizes there's a God who's been faithful and we are going to live into that hope and that expectation that prayer can indeed embrace hope. In fact, that's what I think prayer is supposed to do. It embraces the expectation that God wants to do something in the one who is praying. That It, it, it cries out in hopes for the situation that we bring to God, but it is a hope that our God has been faithful before. And we know He can be again. And we are praying and earnestly seeking where God is moving now. And so it is a call to listen to the Lord in times of trial. Verse 9 says, Surely His salvation is at hand for those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land, that salvation is near, that we are restored in our relationship with God. To, to speak of salvation is to speak about a whole facet of things that happen in our life. To speak of salvation on the one hand is to speak of a restoration of relationship with God. Growing up for me, the, the buzzword to talk about faith and still kind of is, still talk about, is a relationship with God. What does it mean to have faith? It means to have a relationship with God. And on the one hand, what that means, very quite simply, and kind of Protestant lingo is, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe that if you want to talk to God, you can. That your prayer 
can be delivered to God, that you don't have to come to church and say, hey, pastor, will you pray for me? Hey, pastor, will you talk to God for me? That we all are able to approach the throne of grace with prayer and say to the Lord what our needs are, our concerns, and our desires are, and to hear and wait on what the Lord is going to do in that way. Because each person gets to speak to God. We believe there is a relationship there for each one of us. To say we we believe in a relationship with God is to say we believe we can speak and go directly to God. And that we believe we might hear God speak to us when we do so. Salvation has also always had with it the promise and the belief that that God does desire to save us from the sins of this world, that He is a God who liberates, that He is a God who frees. And so that when we go to the Lord with our concerns, we go to the Lord with our shortcomings, that we can still say, God, I need help with this. And that God will be with us and can save us from those things that are hurtful or harmful to ourselves or others. Salvation is, in this psalm, the presence of the Lord in our life. To be saved is to feel God's presence. Um, the psalms, I've, I've said before, often will kind of piggyback ideas. It's their way of rhyming. They rhyme ideas instead of sounds, and it's so evident in Psalm 85. And I just want to point that out to help me talk about salvation for a moment. Earlier we said things like, Lord, be favorable to your land. You've restored the fortunes of Jacob, which is the people in the land. You forgave the iniquity of your people, in verse 2. You pardoned all their sin. Same idea, repeated back and forth. Let me hear what God will speak. He'll speak peace to His people, to His faithful, to those who turn to Him in their hearts. And so... This, this, this back and forth repeating of ideas. Surely His salvation is at hand for those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. And there's this understanding that to be saved is to be in the presence of God. In fact, the whole kind of understanding in the Old Testament of, 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 the, of temple worship, of drawing close to God, of bringing sacrifices was this. Can we become the people God would be pleased to dwell among? If God is going to dwell here, can we be the people that God would be pleased to dwell among? That was the basis of the Old Testament pattern of holiness. And so anything that made them less holy, they wanted to bring as a sacrifice for forgiveness. That salvation for us is not just a mysterious future that we strain forward to in order to hope that we might achieve it. I mean, there's certainly elements that there is indeed a future hope for us. But salvation is also the present experience of God in our life. It is the present experience of His love. It is the forgiveness of any past that we might lament, of any error that we might have done. But it is also the promise of God's ever-present interest in who we are right now. That God has said, you matter I love you. Your life right now is meaningful and purposeful for what I desire. You matter. And sometimes it is hard to imagine that. That when we think of all of creation, it's easy to think how insignificant we are. We are just a speck of dust in the universe. 
that if you keep zooming out and zooming out, if you will, that we go from seeing us to seeing this church to, to, to flying bird's eye view. We'll see the whole city, mountain's eye view. We'll see, we'll see the whole landscape. Uh, jet plane would see the whole country. Uh, satellites going to see the whole world. And you keep going out and keep going out. And after a while, you just find yourself going, man, who am I? <laughs> who am I? We start crying out like Isaiah. Who am I? <laughs> um, but yet, there is a God who says, I am pleased to dwell with you. Your life has significance. Your life has meaning. I actually like that word significance. The root sign. It always points towards something or someone. That God has cared and loved each and every one of us and each person He has created. Even to those who we might have said haven't amounted to much, who haven't accomplished what they had set out to do. Those who wonder, well, what kind of legacy am I leaving? Those who fear whether they will be forgotten. The glory of the Lord is pleased to dwell in your midst, in your land. As the Gospel of John says, that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. A word from the Gospel of John written to a conquered people who hadn't heard from a prophet of the Lord in centuries, and yet the Lord is pleased to dwell among them. And the Advent story of Jesus is that the glory of the Lord is pleased to dwell among a couple whose child is born in a barn, too poor to offer a proper sacrifice at the temple in dedication for their child, Uh, born among a people who have no reason to believe that there'll be anything in the grand scheme of things. And the glory of God is pleased to dwell in that space. And from there, their son, who they will name Jesus, will be pleased to work and provide grace and miracles to crowds of people. And several stories of individuals will be singled out for the telling of those stories. But again, as the Gospel of John will say, if everything Jesus did was written down, there would not be enough books in the world, or there would not be enough space in the world to hold all the books that would be written. So prevalent was Jesus' ministry, so involved was the grace of God in the lives of people that there wasn't even room to write about him. But yet, there, God's grace was pleased to dwell. Or, according to lines of one of my favorite songs, The Love of God, borrowing from a page uh, from uh, the Gospel of John, could we... With ink, the oceans fill, were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretch from sky to sky." And yet, Jesus was pleased to meet each and every one of those people who we didn't even have room to talk about. And there God's grace went and said, I am pleased to dwell here. So much has the Lord Jesus Christ done for the people in his own time that we don't even know most of them. Their memories have faded into legend. But yet, for them, God's love said, Your life is meaningful. You are everything to me. 
and Jesus was willing to go to the cross for them. This love is the love God has for each of us as well, precisely where we are. There's nothing we have to attain to. There's no conditions that have to be met for God to love us, for God to desire to dwell among us. He says, it is just as you are, I love you. Just as we are, without one plea. It's actually, you know, we, we, we know, we, know just, we, we make it singular, just as I am. But uh, that is where God's love goes. And so I, I find that in this verse. Our salvation is that God has said, you matter, you are important, I love you, I have a plan and a future for you. There is salvation from that which holds you back, and there's freedom and there's grace and the presence of the Lord in our life. So verse 10 says, is steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. There's that word steadfast love or hesed once again. Uh, in the book that was handed out, Joy of Every Longing Heart, in today's reading, you'll find that Dan Boone says, gives another definition for steadfast love. We find ourselves wondering, what does that mean again? He, his definition is a little longer, but it's very easy to understand. Steadfast love is this. The behavior that one person has the right to expect of the other in light of promises that were made. Let me say that again. Steadfast love is the behavior that one person has the right to expect of the other in light of promises that were made. The faithfulness to those promises out of love that one person has made for another. That is an example of what steadfast love is. So when we find in this psalm, in the, in the verses I know I skipped, but in the verses that have to do with God's anger or God's uh, uh, plan of action against someone who sinned against them, it is not a vindictive God. It's not a God who said, well, you messed up and now I'm going to get you. It, it, is, it is the anger of one who has recognized, we had a covenant together and it has been broken. It has been scorned. It has been absolutely ruined. The old saying, hell hath no fury, like one who has been scorned. But hell is the very scorning of God's covenant. It, it, it is uh, the, the, the scriptures that have to do with God's anger are about a God who said, I have loved you and care for you. How could this be? How could this happen? And this entire psalm then comes as a kind of confession. A confession born out of remembering God's faithfulness. That he's loved and he's been faithful to us. And that there is an ideal for this relationship that we have with God. A, a picture of, of what it might look like, of, of what our relationship with God is supposed to be. And so verse 10 says, His steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. That God's steadfast love will finally meet the faithfulness of His people. This is what they're hoping for. This is what they're praying for. This is what the Advent brings. That going on, He says, the righteousness and peace will kiss each other. That God's righteousness restoring us to right relationship with Him is met by us living and seeking peace and harmony one with another. That God's bestowing of a right relationship with us is tied to our commitment to peace. Or as Jesus would say it in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, they're going to be called children of God. 
To be a part of the family of God is, is to be a peacemaker, is to seek harmony with one another, to practice loving our neighbor as ourself. I love that beatitude, that, that we are the peacemakers become the children of God. Now, I, I do want to say that this is one of those where um, the old way of, of saying that beatitude is actually kind of fitting. Uh, originally, uh, you would find it say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And I am all for, all for updating language to make sure it's inclusive. I'm all for that. But in the Old Testament, the, the phrase a son of God or sons of God is a phrase that's used oftentimes to talk about a person who has drawn particularly close to God or someone who is uh, taking on characteristics of the divine. It is, a, it is used with, about King David, it is used uh, in other areas to talk about those who have drawn particularly close to God. And it is used as a way of saying that they are taking on the attributes of the divine. And so when, for instance, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called sons of God, it is a way of saying being a peacemaker in our world is divine activity. It is the calling of God, is the reflecting of what God desires in our world. To be committed to seeing the image of God in other people is to become like God, to live into our sanctification. In the church of Nazarene, we, we love to emphasize and remind and remember that God has called us to holiness. To sanctification is, is, is the big word term, but basically we are called to holiness. That, that our faith, yes, all you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Believe in Christ for your salvation, but in that belief we are called to continue to say, God, how do you want me to live from here? God, how can, will your Holy Spirit continue to work in me? And help me to live in right relationship with you. That we would go from just a mental ascent, okay, I believe, but my life will be conformed to your will. That's holiness. And so, uh, uh, so, so this, this call to holiness, to being like a son of God, is to be a peacemaker in our world. I found myself thinking to be a peacemaker, to, to be someone who, who loves one that truly is to see the image of God in them. I have, I've been thinking a lot over the last couple of months about the phrase, the image of God. It, it, it's a phrase that shows up in the creation story. God creates, uh, uh, over, uh, he creates the, the first five days and the sixth day. God creates humanity in the image of God, Genesis tells us. And uh, he says it's very good. And it's this wonderful picture. And there's been a lot of ink spilled on image of God talk. And um, uh, some, some, some church fathers said, uh, oh, maybe the image, they want, want to know what is the image of God? What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? What is the image of God? What does it mean that I'm created in the image of God? And so they wrestled with this a lot. What is the image of God? Is it our capacity to reason. Not all of creation can reason like we can, so maybe it's our capacity to reason. And so there was thought about that. Maybe, it, maybe it's our reason. Maybe it's our will. Maybe, uh, maybe it's our capacity to love. Maybe, maybe that is there. And so, so they thought, what does it mean that we're created in the image of God as opposed to the rest of creation? Some took it a little bit further as they, maybe it's not just our reason, but, our, but uh, because... There are lots of creation that can like create things and build things and, and things like that. But maybe it's, maybe it's like our self-reflection 
that we can even think about who we are or our eternity or we can think about our relationship with God or even think about our relationship with others. But all kinds of, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And uh, lots written about that. And I found myself over the last couple months realizing that I think that we have for a long time kind of gotten it wrong with how to think about the image of God. I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'll come back to this. Is, um, in Genesis 6 and 9, it's a story of uh, Noah building the ark and uh, the, the warning of the flood. And, uh, and this is after the fall. A lot of times in, in talking and thinking about what it means to be in the image of God, in other words, what it means to reflect God. One of the things as they struggle with what it means to be created in the image of God, one of the things that was clear again and again was that whatever it is, we're fallen. After the fall, we're not doing a very good job of reflecting God. And so how do we restore that? In fact, the call to holiness has often been seen as a call to, re, to restore the image of God within us. But looking at Genesis 6 and 9, I found myself thinking, when, when, when he calls out the world for destroying each other and the violence and the unfaithfulness to each other, he says to them, you no longer see the image of God in my creation. And in Genesis 9, when the, when the rainbow's coming and he says, um, for you, had, you, had, uh, you, you did not see the image of God in one another and you turned to this, but I will never destroy the world again. In those passages of scripture, the image of God is mentioned again. And it's after the fall. It's after Adam and Eve uh, uh, were kicked out of the garden. But in the way it's spoken of is this. The image of God is not something within me. It's not something to own. It's not something to attain. It's not something I say, what is it? What is it? Can I hold it? Can I grasp it? Can, can I identify with it? What does it mean that I'm made in the image of God? The image of God is something I see in someone else. The image of God is how God reveals His character in the interactions I have with the people He puts before me. And it's seeing and recognizing in those who I interact with that, yeah, God has made this person too. And God will reveal himself through characteristics and things of those that I see around me. It's a call to love. It is indeed a call to peacemaking. It is a call of, to recognize that the, where the righteousness of God is, that restores us in right relationship with us, is reciprocated by the peace, the harmony that we live in together. That that is how we grow and reciprocate our covenant with God. Verse 11 will say, faithfulness will spring up from the ground. Righteousness will look down from the sky. Our faithfulness, His righteousness meets. Again, the relationship between the Creator and the creation. The blessing and the promise of the Lord is a part of his character. He loves, that is who he is. His love for us is evident and available for us to respond to. One of my favorite uh, books to think about what is happening in the whole salvation experience is Responsible Grace. A book that came out about 20 years ago, but one that reminds us that when it comes to how are we saved, is it from God, how, how much do, do I have a hand in this? Responsible Grace says this, it's all God's grace, but God's grace gives us the ability 
to respond with faithfulness. That's why it's responsible. We are able to respond to God's grace. There is always a partnership in the salvation experience that we recognize, God, you have loved, and his love is not a sweeping under the rug of sin, but is a calling of his people to live faithfully to what he calls us to. That we can indeed lament where covenants have been broken. We can repent of failings, but we can celebrate that God's love is for us today. And with that, expect that God is still at work in us, and that is okay. This season of Advent is a season in which we expect that God is still coming to change and to do what He needs to do in our life. And that we don't have to look back and say, well, I've been waiting a while, what now? But to to trust in the God who has been faithful and to pray and turn ourselves to Him and say, God, what are you going to do with this faithfulness? And what are you going to do in the face of the world around us? And help us to see that in praying this way, God opens our eyes and opens our hearts to what He is about and indeed invites us to see His love through those around us. This season of Advent leading to Christmas, we celebrate God's love that was so immense that He chose to dwell in our presence. And of course, we can do that throughout the year. We do that Uh, through worship. We do that through sharing with others. We do that through loving one another. But this season is one in particular. We we remember that there is sometimes a waiting in our life, an uncertainty of what's going to happen next, of what the next things to be are going to look like. But we recognize that God is with us through those times. And that even in the waiting and expectation, we can look back to moments where God has been faithful and say, okay, you have been there for, for me, and I want to be faithful for you during this time of expectation when we wait for your return. The church often calls that, we recognize that the promise of Christ, the redemption of the world, is a promise that began and is completed on the cross of Christ, but it is not fully fulfilled yet until he returns, and we are waiting that fulfillment. But know that we are loved. You are loved. The truth is at the heart of the Christmas story. God's love is abiding and faithful. And we can trust that God's love is expansive and present for us, all around us. Even if others have failed us or we ourselves have failed, we know that there's a God who loves us and we can turn to Him in those moments and remember that He has been faithful and we can celebrate where God reveals his steadfast love to us even now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for uh, your love. I thank you that uh, from the moment you created us, you knew that we would be able to reflect who you are and you invite us indeed to look upon one another as if we are reflecting who you are. Lord, help, help that to be a catalyst for seeking peace. Help that to be a catalyst for sharing love with one another. Help us, Heavenly Father, in this season to recognize, to pray, or to sing peace and goodwill on earth is indeed the very calling that you have put upon our life. And so, Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the promise of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one whose Spirit is with us today. 
And uh, help us, Heavenly Father, to hear and be faithful to the prompting of your Holy Spirit. Help us to live with grace and love. And Lord, uh, help us to uh, turn to you when we need it most. And all the bare honesty and just know that you are coming, that you are working, and that you will move in ways that will surprise us. Thank you again for this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God richly bless you as you serve him today. 